welcome to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, December 18th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Iowa Farmland Value Reaches Record Highs. Iowa farmland has never been more valuable. The average value of an acre of Iowa farmland increased 17% to 11411 in 2022, according to the Iowa State Land Value Survey. That is the highest value for Iowa farmland in the history of the survey, which began in 1941. And when adjusting for inflation, the 2022 average farmland value surpassed the previous inflation-adjusted high watermark set in 2013, according to the survey. This year's 17% increase in farmland value comes on the heels of a 29% jump in 2021. This year's increase was driven by high crop prices, limited land supply, and low interest rates, an Iowa State University expert said. Not only are crop prices much higher, livestock and poultry prices are also significantly higher, translating into higher farm income and profits. Wendong Zhang, an associate professor of economics and faculty affiliate of ISU's Center for Agriculture and Rural Development, which conducts the annual survey, said in a statement, Zhang said inflation drove the 2021 spike in farmland value, but not 2022's increase. He said the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates does not impact farmland value, since 81% of the land is fully paid for. Instead, land values are high because farmers have a ca- have cash on hand that they are investing in land, according to a news release. The value of Iowa farmland has become too high, many survey respondents said. 70% said farmland values are too high or way too high, according to ISU. That can create a barrier for beginning farmers, Zhang said. The higher land values do create an even higher entry barrier for beginning farmers. And following, in, in following increase in cash rents acro- along with higher input costs could negatively affect producers, especially those with lots of rented ground, Zhang said in the statement. The last two times Iowa farmland values hit record highs, they were following they were followed by precipitous drops. Using inflation adjusted numbers, using inflation adjusted figures, after surpassing six thousand dollars per acre in the early nineteen eighties, farmland value plummeted to below two thousand dollars per acre by the end of the decade, according to ISU data. And after climbing back to nearly $9,000 per acre in 2013, values dropped below $7,000 per acre over the next decade. The 2022 Land Value Survey used responses from 443 agriculture professionals knowledgeable in land market conditions, such as appraisers, farm managers, and ag lenders, as well as land sales information, according to ISU. Now, let's move on to a different article. QAnon follower who chased after officer on January 6th gets five years. An Iowa construction worker and QAnon follower was sentenced Friday to five years in prison for his role in January 6th, 2021, insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, when he led a crowd chasing a police officer who diverted rioters away from lawmakers. 
Wearing a t-shirt celebrating the conspiracy theory with his arms spread, Douglas Jensen became part of one of the most memorable images of the riot. As he handed down the sentence, Judge Timothy Kelly said that he wasn't sure Jensen understood the seriousness of a violent attack in which he played a big role. It snapped our previously unbroken tradition of peaceful transfer of power. We can't get that back, Kelly said. I wish I could say I had evidence you understood this. You understood this cannot be repeated. Jensen was convicted uh, at trial of seven counts, including felony charges. He obstructed Congress from certifying the Electoral College vote and that he assaulted or interfered with police officers during the siege. His sentence also includes three years of supervised release and a $2,000 fine. He gave a brief statement to the judge, saying that he wanted to return to being a family man and my normal life before I got involved in politics. Jensen scaled a retaining wall and entered through a broken window so he could be one of the first people to storm the Capitol that day, Kelly said. He led a group that chased Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman up a staircase. He would later re-enter the building and scuffle with police. Doug Jensen wanted to be the poster boy for the insurrection, Prosecutor Emily Allen said. Jensen wore a t-shirt with a large Q on it because he wanted the conspiracy theory to get credit for what happened that day, his defense attorney, Christopher Davis, said. Davis said Jensen's own childhood of horrors influenced his later faith in in the baseless belief that former President Donald Trump was secretly fighting against enemies in the deep state and a a child sex trafficking ring run by satanic pedophiles and cannibals. It also includes the apocalyptic prophecy that the storm was coming and would usher in mass arrests and executions of Trump's foes, including then-Vice President Mike Pence, who Trump would deride that day as lacking courage. Davis has argued that Jensen was dressed as a walking advertisement for QAnon, not intending to attack the Capitol, He did not physically hurt people or damage anything inside the Capitol, Davis said, and many many friends and family wrote letters to to the judge on his behalf. Goodman's quick thinking that day to divert the rioters away from the Senate and then then find backup avoided tremendous bloodshed, Capitol Police Inspector Thomas Lloyd said Friday. Pence was presiding over the Senate on January 6th as a joint session of Congress was convened to certify President Joe Biden's 2020 electoral victory. Before this riot, Trump and his allies spread the falsehood that Pence somehow could have overturned the election results. Approximately 900 people have been charged with federal crimes for their conduct on January 6th. More than 400 of them have have pleaded guilty, mostly to misdemeanor offenses. Sentences for rioters have ranged from probation for low-level misdemeanor offensive to 10 years in prison for a man who used a metal flagpole to assault an officer. Now let's go on to the article, Iowa Democrats Lose Leader After Election, Caucus Defeats. Iowa Democratic Party Chairman Ross Wilburn announced Saturday that he will step down as leader of the party after Democrats were Democrats were drubbed in the two, in the November eighth midterm election, and National Democrats are poised to strip Iowa of its first in the nation caucus status. Wilburn, a state representative from Ames, was elected in January twenty twenty one as the party's first black chair. 
He replaced outgoing chair and former state representative Mark Smith, who decided not to seek a second term. Wilburn, in a statement, said that his service to Iowans will continue as a state lawmaker, but it is time to pass the torch. As the leader of the party, I have worked with worked to stem external threats, listen to those who have felt left behind, and manage expectations about what we could do with the the resources at our disposal, he said. No one can predict the resources at our disposal. No one can predict the future, but I have the utmost faith that whoever takes up the mantle next will guide our party with grace through the challenges ahead. As we continue to work on growing our party and electing Democrats, who will fight for the ideas we know are supported by a strong majority of Iowans. Wilburn called it an honor of a lifetime to serve as the first African-American chair of the Iowa Democratic Party. No matter what, I will always put people before politics, he said. If we want to make Iowa a place where folks want to live, work, and raise a family, we have a lot of work to do, and I am in this for the long haul. Elections for the new chair and party officers will take place on January 28th. Republicans in Iowa dominated the November 8th general election in a statewide red wave that that bucked the the national trend where the GOP fell short of expectations. Iowa Republicans now occupy all six seats in the state's congressional delegation, the governor's office, all statewide offices save for one, ousting two long-serving Democratic incumbents and gained historically large majorities in the legislature. State Auditor Rob Sand, the lone Democrat to avoid defeat in the statewide elections, narrowly holding onto his seat despite spending his opponent by seven figures, thanked Wilburn for his patience, work ethic, and peacemaking as IDP chair. And he deserves credit for good work done in a tough environment, Sand posted on Twitter. I wish him the best and look forward to continuing to work with him. The election losses were immediately followed by Democratic National Committee Rules and Bylaws Committee vote earlier this month to boot Iowa from the first of the pres- of the presidential nominating calendar, replacing it with South Carolina. Republicans, on the other hand, will keep Iowa as its first in the nation caucuses for GOP presidential candidates. I'm really disappointed because I really like Ross and think that he worked really hard and accomplished a lot as the first African-American chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, said Scott Brennan, the only Iowan in the DNC, on the DNC Rules Committee, who served as Iowa Democratic Party chair twice, from 2006 to 2009 and 2013 to 2014. Despite a tough year for Iowa Democrats, Brennan said, he never talked to anyone who has blamed for Ross Wilburn of for any of those things. He's worked very hard and done everything he should have done as a, as chair, Brennan said, and any criticism of Ross is misplaced. In a challenging election cycle, he was very disciplined and hit all the fundraising goals set for him, and was just a good leader of the party. Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman echoed Brennan. It's real easy to try to choose one person who is responsible for something disappointing, but it's not grounded in reality, Kaufman said. Anybody in the Democratic Party that thinks that replacing a chair is going to change the prospects are mightily mistaken. Brennan said that he was too old to speculate on names, as who might run for chair for the Iowa Democratic Party. 
It's going to be hard work, and it's going to have to be someone who really wants to do it, he said. So I look forward to supporting whoever it is. Now let's go on to the article. Paxlovid has been free so far. Next year, sticker shock awaits. Nearly 6 million Americans have taken Paxlovid for free, courtesy of the federal government. The Pfizer pill has helped prevent many people infected with COVID-19 from being hospitalized or dying, and it may even reduce the risk of developing long COVID. But the government plans to stop footing the bill within months, and millions of people who are at highest risk of severe illness and are least able to afford the drug are uninsured, and seniors may have, may have to pay the full price. And that means fewer people will get the potentially life-saving treatments, experts said. I think the numbers will go down, said Jill Rosenthal, Director of Public Health Policy at the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning think tank. A bill for several hundred dollars or more would lead people to decide the medication isn't worth the price, she said. In response to the unprecedented public health crisis caused by COVID, the federal government spent billions of dollars on developing new vaccines and treatments. The swift success. Less than a year after the pandemic was declared, a medical worker got the first vaccines. But as many people have refused the shots and stopped wearing masks, the virus still rages and mutates. In 2022 alone, 250,000 Americans have died from COVID, more, from, more than from strokes or diabetes. But soon, the Department of Health and Human Services will stop supplying COVID treatments, and pharmacies will purchase and bill for them the, for the same way they do for antibiotic pills or a- a- asthma inhalers. Paxlovid is expected to hit the private market in mid-2023, according to the HHS plans shared in an October meeting with state health officials and clinicians. Merrick Lagraviro, a less effective COVID treatment pill, and AstraZeneca's Evusheld, a preventive therapy for the immunocompromised, are on track to be commercialized sooner, sometime in the winter. The U.S. government has so far purchased 20 million courses of Paxlovid, priced at about about $530 each, a discount for buying in bulk that Pfizer CEO Albert Borlia called a really very attractive into the federal government in a July earnings call. The drug will cost far more on the private market, although in a statement to KHN, Pfizer declined to share the planned price. The government will also stop paying for the company's COVID vaccine next year. Those shots will quadruple in price from the discount rate the government pays of $30 to around $120. Berlia told investors in November that he expects the move will make Paxlovid and its COVID vaccine a multi-billion dollars franchise. Nearly 9 in 10 people dying from the virus are now 65 or older. Yet, federal law restricts Medicare Part D, the prescription drug program that covers nearly 50 million seniors, from covering the the COVID treatment pills. The medications are meant for those most at risk of serious illness, including seniors. Paxlovid and other treatments are currently currently available under an emergency use authorization from FDA, a fast-track review used in extraordinary situations. Although Pfizer applied for full approval in June, the process can take anywhere from several months to years. 
and Medicare Part D can't cover any medications without that full stamp of approval. Paying out-of-pocket would be a substantial barrier for seniors on Medicare, the very people who benef- would benefit most from the drug, wrote federal health experts. From public health perspective, and even from a health care company, a healthcare capacity and cost perspective, it would just defy reason to not continue to make these drugs readily available, said Dr. Larry Madoff, medical director of Massachusetts Bureau of Infectious Disease and Laboratory Sciences. He's hopeful that the federal health agency will find a way to set aside unused doses for seniors and people without insurance. In mid-November, the White House requested that Congress approve an additional $2.5 billion COVID therapeutics and vaccines to make sure people can afford the medications when they're no longer free. But there's little hope that it will be approved. The Senate voted that same day to end the public health emergency and denied similar requests in recent months. Now let's go on to the article. Regulators shut down Marengo Recycler. C60 plan a clear threat to public health. Iowa regulators have slapped an emergency order on a Marengo company after a December 8th explosion, calling the C60 facility a clear threat to public health and the environment because of unknown flammable chemicals and gases remaining in a damaged building. Despite repeated information requests from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and a meeting in which the in which compliance matters were discussed, C60 and Mr. Howard Brand have failed to comply with Iowa's air quality hazardous condition, solid waste and legitimate recycling laws, according to the order signed Thursday and released Friday by Iowa, DNR Director Kyla Lyon. The facility is not legitimately recycling materials and must cease operations. All solid waste remaining at the facility must be immediately and properly disposed of. The state ordered C60, and there's a few bullet points after this, they were ordered to stop all operations to recycle shingles, secure the facility at 810 East South Street in Marengo to protect the public from another fire or explosion, put up protective barriers to prevent pollutants from going in the Iowa River, within 15 days submit an environmental site assessment plan, and pay for all... remediation at the site. Remediation. The order notes regulators may impose civil penalties of up to $5,000 per day for solid waste violations and water quality violations, and up to $10,000 per day for air quality violations. The DNR reserves the right to impose or ask the Attorney General to pursue civil penalties for the violations referenced in this emergency order and for any other violations that have yet to be discussed. The order states, At this time, the DNR primarily focus is on protecting human health and the environment and around the C6 facility. The C60 describes itself as a recycler of used asphalt shingles with founder Howard Brand III attempting to use proprietary solvent to dissolve the shingles into component parts of oil, sand, and fiberglass. The Marengo plant, which opened in 2020 and had around 30 employees, still was in pilot phase December 8th when liquid solvent in a tank exploded and started a fire. Between 10 and 15 people were treated for injuries at the University of Iowa Hospital and clinics 
and neighbors living near the facility were briefly evacuated. A GoFundMe campaign for, for Cody Blasberg, a father and C30 employee, said he took the brunt of the explosion and was severely burned in critical condition in the days after the blast. The campaign had raised over $11,000 of a $25,000 goal by Friday. Brand 2 was injured in the blast. Mark Corallo, a consultant with C60, told the Gazette earlier this week. Corallo did not respond Friday afternoon to a request about Iowa DNR order. The 12-page order outlines how the Iowa DNR first learned about C60 operating in the state. The agency's field office, 6, staff in Washington, Iowa, first talked with company representatives May 13, 2021, when Brand and other employee told an Iowa DNR staff that their plan was to reverse manufacture shingles. They said that they were not subject to Iowa's solid waste or other environmental regulations. C60 told the state that the company has a clean bill of health in the other states where it has previously operated, including Texas, Louisiana, and Colorado, the order states. Colorado and Texas officials told the Gazette earlier this week about environmental concerns they had with Brand under his company's previous names of Brand Technologies and Brandlick Holdings. Iowa DNR officials learned about these concerns in late May 2021, but visits to the Mar-a-Lago site through December 2021 didn't show the stockpiles of shingles that had been problems elsewhere. But on April 7th, Iowa DNR staff attempted to visit C60 and were denied entry. The C60 staff refused to allow DNR staff to enter and inspect the facility, stating at one point that the DNR had no right to be on the property, the order states. On May 24th, the state got notice from Jeff Boyink, former chief of staff for, for former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad, that C60 had hired Boyink's LS2 group to help the company navigate the regulatory environment in Iowa. But from May to November, the C60 staff did not answer the Iowa DNR's questions about their manufacturing process and air emissions, the order states. Iowa DNR Air Solid, Solid Waste and Field Office staff visited the C6 plant November 9th for a scheduled meeting and tour, the order states. The tour was halted partway at the direction of C60 staff. DNR staff stated that they wanted to see the rest of the facility, but were denied access. Mr. Brand stated that they would have to set up a subsequent tour to see the rest of the facility, the order states. On December 5th, the three days before the fire and explosion, Iowa DNR staff contacted Boyink to get C60 to submit a Tier, 3, a tier 2 report which identifies hazardous chemicals stored in the building. Boyink said that he would forward the request to C60's attorney, but the state never heard back, the order states. Since the explosion, Iowa DNR staff has, have had access to the burned and waterlogged building, where they saw multiple large ankle-deep pools of oily substance and missing walls and ceiling portions, suggesting the building isn't stable, the order states. Inside the buildings are large quantities of unknown chemicals in buckets, barrels, and gas tanks, along with big piles of loose crushed shingles, all of which are exposed to wind, rain, and changing temperatures, the order states. 
Water samples taken from nearby waterways show evidence of pollution from the site, agency reported. There is no security around the facility, and there appears to be nothing at the facility to prevent such an event from happening again. Now let's move on to... Pipeline Plan Draws Protest. Landowners discuss strategies for resisting at Shell Rock meeting. The carbon pipelines proposed to run through Iowa are not a done deal. The Iowa Charter of the Sierra Club and Food and Water Watch made sure to emphasize that point at an event Thursday in Butler County in advocating for ways people can protect their land, communities, and futures against companies looking to embark on these projects. About 75 people turned out to the Shell Rock Elementary School to hear Jessica Mazor, the Sierra Club's conservation program coordinator, on a snowy, icy evening. Omaha, Nebraska-based Navigator CO2 is focused on in northeast, northeast Iowa as its pipeline is proposed to pass through Butler, Floyd, Bremer, Buchanan, Hardin, Franklin, Fayette, and Delaware counties. Mazur said that she believes that the end goal for these companies is to make as much money as possible through the 45Q Federal Tax Credit Program for carbon sequestration and questions whether their projects are actually climate change solutions. She also noted how, in this case, eminent domain, a mechanism in which companies in which a company gains the right to use land from owners not interested in signing voluntary easement agreements, should not be used for a carbon pipeline project because it's not being built in the interest of the public good like a water pipe might be. She noted the pipeline could damage land in long term and poses health risks like a CO2 pipeline built in Sataria, Mississippi that was ruptured in 2020. We don't want these pipeline bombs essentially next to our schools and homes, Mazur said. Emma Schmidt, senior organizer for Food and Water Watch, noted property owners do not need to sign the easement agreement and should stand firm. She explained how Republicans gained greater House control in the Iowa House and Senate after last month's election and urged those against the pipeline to reach out to key Republicans prior to the January legislative session. They'll play a role in whether the pro- they'll play a role in whether legislation stopping the project altogether or slowing it down is passed. We need to make sure that we are putting as much pressure and having as much conservation with pe- conversations with people that have the power to stop these as possible over the next few months, Schmidt said. She highlighted Representative Pat Grassley, Speaker of the House, Representative Jane Bloomingdale, Chair of the House and State Government Committee, Senator Jack Whitver, Senate Majority Leader, and Senate a- Senator Amy Sinclair, President-Elect of the Senate. Grassley of New Hartford was re-elected to representing the new District 57, including Butler County, and part of Bremer County. He helped pass to pass a brief memor- memor- moratorium on pipelines in the House before the measure died in the Senate. In my 16 years in Iowa House, I have never heard more concerns from constituents related to a single issue than the CO2 pipeline project currently proposed for our area, said Grassley, in a letter to the Iowa Utilities Board. The agency will decide whether to grant the company a permit and possibly rule on a request to use eminent domain to acquire rights to some property necessary for construction. 
Schmidt emphasized they want to first ask what we want and then compromise by respectively communicating their demands during meetings and by letters and calls. The top priority should be getting legislation that bans the use of eminent domain for these pipeline projects. In eventual, if eventually that goal is denied, opponents can fight for other priorities. Those could include limiting the alleged harassing of property owners or instituting a threshold of property owners who must volunteer, voluntarily sign easement agreements for companies to move forward with eminent domain. Butler County Supervisor Greg Barnett and Representative Sandy Salmon attended the meeting to offer support and discuss the issue with constituents. I'm here to back you guys up, said Barnett. Attendees also asked questions, looked at maps with the affected parcels, and were offered buttons and yard signs to bring awareness to the pipeline plans. I think it helps a lot to have more of these meetings together to get more people out here, even though maybe it doesn't go across their farm, and to try and keep all your neighbors involved, said Monty Miller, an owner of a farm west of Shellrock. If granted approval, Navigator plans to construct thousands of miles of pipeline in 2024. It will capture and transport up to 15 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emitted by 21 ethanol and fertilizer processors across multiple states in sequestered in central Illinois. Navigator, and con Navigator has and continues to work closely and collaboratively with landowners, community leaders, and interested stakeholders and others to put forward infrastructure that is safe, reliable, and value-added to the development of rural America, the company said in a statement for this story. We look forward to meeting, and in many cases, exceeding local, state, and federal regulations to ensure it's built safely the right way to the, least, to the last. The technology, the company said, will provide continued market demand and growth for ethanol and other critical rural manufacturers. And it'll offer a clear path forward to the future to the, of the biofuel industry while also providing long-term economic certainty Midwest communities deserve. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, December 18th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Nancy Showers Nancy Showers, 86, of Waterloo, died on Sunday, December 11, 2022, at Friendship Village in Wellspring Living. Nancy was born on March 30, 1936, in Des Moines, daughter of Russell and Gladys Roach Stiefel, and graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1954. She married Stephen A. Showers on April 5, 1975, in Waterloo. He died May 3, 2016. Nancy worked for 16 years in the business office at Northwestern Bell in Des Moines and Waterloo. The rest of her career was being a community volunteer for 48 years, with 23 of those at Lincoln Elementary in Waterloo. Nancy and Stefan were named the 1995 Waterloo Chamber Citizens of the Year. She was a member of Hope City Church. Nancy is survived by her sister, Sharon Gerald Stiefel Wilcox of Norwalk, and many nieces and nephews and stepchildren, Susie Williamson of Fairfax Station, Virginia, Robert S. Showers of Bloomington, Minnesota, and David D. Showers of Waterloo. 
She's preceded in death by her parents, husband, brother Donald R. Stiefel, and sister, Ela May Stiefel Hay. Family graveside services will be held later at Waterloo Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the American Legion Becker Chapman Post 138. Arrangements by Locke on 4th. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Charles D. Morris. Charles D. Morris, 70, passed away peacefully with his wife by his side December 12th at the Cedar Valley Hospice due to complications of lung cancer and reoccurring strokes. Chuck was a 1971 West Waterloo graduate, employed by John Deere for nearly 40 years as a pipe fitter, member of Orchard Hill Church, and loved to golf. He is survived by his loving wife, Lori of 35 years, sister Jane Annette Lomita, California, sister Charlotte Haycraft of Evansdale, Iowa, two nieces, three nephews, and a son, Zachary, from a previous marriage. Welcoming to his new heavenly home will be the couple's only child, daughter, Allison, his parents, Charles and Effie Morris, sister, Betty, and brother-in-law, Pat Volbrecht. In lieu of flowers, all memorials may be directed to the Allison Morris Forever 28 Scholarship Fund. Send to UNI Foundation, 121 Commons, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50614. There will be no services. John Herbert McIntosh. John Herbert McIntosh, 90 years old, of Dunkerton, Iowa, died Wednesday, December 14, 2022, at his home. John was born October 4, 1932, in Blackhawk County, Iowa, son of Bernard and Elizabeth McIntosh. Following graduation from Dunkerton High School in 1950, he worked on the family farm. John then entered the United States Army, serving from 1953 through 1955. On on April 21, 1957, he was united in marriage to Junita Swinford at the First Baptist Church in Dunkerton. He was a farmer and a lifelong member of the First Baptist Church in Dunkerton. John is survived by three sons and two daughters, James McIntosh, John McIntosh, Anita Clamon, Matthew, Anita Clamon, Matthew McIntosh, George Ann Swinford, also 17 grandchildren, 28 great-grandchildren, two step-grandchildren, and four step-great-grandchildren. He is preceded in death by his wife, Junita, also his parents, one son, Dwayne Earl Swinford, one daughter, Catherine Swinsford, one great-granddaughter, Everly McIntosh, one great-grandson, Canon McIntosh, one brother, William. Memorial services will be held at 1.30 p.m. Sunday, December 18, 2022, at the First Baptist Church in Dunkerton. Memorials may be directed to the First Baptist Church in Dunkerton or a charity of the donor's choice. White Funeral Home in Jessup, Iowa, assisted the family with arrangements. Diana K. Quario. Diana K. Quario, 71, of Waterloo, passed away peacefully on Tuesday, December 6, 2022, at Allen Hospital, surrounded by family and friends. Celebration of life ceremony to be announced later. Diana is survived by her husband, Robert, sister, Catherine Eilers, daughter, daughters, Christina Henkel, Linda Rambach, grandchildren, Alexius L. Lyle, Addison, and cousins, nieces, nephews, and friends.
Diana is preceded in death by her parents, Carvel Dennis and Catherine Frisbay. In lieu of flowers, condolences and memorials can be sent to the family at 861 West Airline Highway, Waterloo, Iowa 50703. Leona M. Hibben. Leona M. Hibben, 86, of Dubuque, Iowa, and formerly of Waterloo, passed away Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Funeral services will be at 4 p.m. Monday, December 19th at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Waterloo, in Dubuque. Visitation will be from 1 p.m. to 3.45 p.m. Monday at the church. The Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper funeral service is assisting the family. Among those surviving Leona is her husband, Russ, son, Gary Hibben of Waterloo, and daughter, Vicki Payne of Tracer, Iowa. Now let's move on to the sports section, starting with high school girls wrestling. Charles City Lily Luft wins 100th match. In an already historical career, Charles City's Lily Luft made history again. With a 31-second pin in a 135-pound match against Northcott's Bryn Steffens Saturday at the Battle of Waterloo, Luft became just the third Iowa girl wrestler to win 100 matches in her career. Luft Luft joins future Iowa teammate Felicity Taylor, who did it for for South Winnesheek High School, and Allie Gerbracht of AGWSR, the very first IWOCA state champion. But like all of the pioneer of girls wrestling in Iowa, which Luft is one of, she spent little time celebrating her accomplishment in the seconds and minutes after number 100, but rather focus, her focus was on her Comet teammates. I absolutely love celebrating my teammates wins more, Luft said. I think encouraging them, a lot of our team is new this year, so seeing them and encouraging them, encouraging me in a sport I love so much, has given me so many opportunities in my life. I find so much more joy in celebrating them. While modest, Luft did enjoy her brief moment with a huge smile on her face as her accomplishment was announced over the Young Arena loudspeakers, and she was given a round of applause. And then again after the match, when she stood with her teammates holding a poster commemorating her achievement. Luft said, joining an elite list of Iowa high school wrestlers is special. I just show all the hard work and dedication you put in the sport is paying off a little bit. Luff said, that this is the goal I set my freshman year to finally be, uh, to finally be accomplishing my senior year is pretty cool. Luft added a second pin over Miley Waltz of East Buchanan in her second match Saturday, as Charles City went 0-2, losing to North Scott 45-36 and beating East Buchanan 34-27. I love it at the Battle of Waterloo, Luff said. This is our fourth year coming here, and now it is a two-day tournament. I think it is cool that they are growing girls wrestling. We see a lot of good teams, and it will get us ready for state. Luft added that it's hard to believe that her high school career is winding down as the first sanctioned Iowa high school state tournament is just a month away. Already a two-time state champion, she hopes to add a third extreme arena and Coralville, where she was last week serving as an ambassador for Team USA at the 2022 World Cup, which featured some of the biggest names in men and women's wrestling in the world. Luft was able to hang out with the American team and sit on the bench during the competition. 
It was such a cool experience, Luff said. Got to walk out with the team, help them with whatever they needed, getting to cheer them on, watching them warm up. It was super cool. It was definitely something I was glad I took advantage of the opportunity. The fact that this is her final go-round with the comments, Luff admits, hasn't really set in completely. Putting it in perspective that this is my last Battle of Waterloo is something that is sad, but also amazing, Luff said. I'm excited for college. Take that next step and go to the next level. But I'm excited for the rest of my senior year. So far, it's gone really well. We as a team are still getting things done. Obviously, there are a lot of things to work on. Always will be. But it is just focusing on those little details, then being ready to go show everybody what is up in February. Luft is one of two girls to hit the 100-win plateau this month, as Southwest Valley's Ali Linguist at the University of Sioux Falls Commit also reached the mark. On to another wrestling article. Brothers in more than the name, Wapsie Valley twins support and motivate each other. Despite losing the lower half of his leg to cancer, Wapsie Valley Fairbank Jr. Brody Cleach has earned a reputation as one of the best wrestlers on his team. Saturday was a good demonstration. The 120-pound pounder started the second day of the Battle of Waterloo with a pin over Jude Seebeck from City High in a minute and 23 seconds. When the match was done, he moved over to the next mat to beat Clarion Goldfield Dow's Rigo Bobadilla by technical fall before losing by a single point to Sioux City's Helen Ben Walsh. However, Brody isn't the only cleach on the Warriors roster, making a name for himself. His older twin, Brock, is never far behind at 160. They've been that way since birth. We fight all the time. It doesn't matter when, whatever, there's, some, there's always something to fight about. And I guess nothing's really changed, and we still get after it, Brock said. But when Brody was diagnosed with cancer going into their freshman year, it threw the family into turmoil. Brock was there for it all, something that wasn't lost on Brody or their head coach, Brian Crawl. It's a brotherly thing. It's just like the wrestling room. They attack things head-on, Crawl said. They've got each other's backs. For his part, Brock shrugged it off. I just kept doing what I was doing, he said. The road wasn't easy. Doctors had to amputate to save Brody's life, and he had to learn a new style of wrestling to accommodate his new circumstances. The solution he worked out with Crawl was to get on top and strike hard, creating pressure on his opponents. He's a hammer on top, Crawl said. We're working on a lot of things with him, specifically for offense on top, and he's having a lot of success with it. The sky's the limit. Getting back on the mat, Brody found inspiration in NCAA champion Anthony Robles, a wrestler who, like Brody, did it all on one leg. He's just someone that I look up to, and I can just watch his matches to build, off my, to build my style off of, Brody said. Learning a new style took time, but just, before, but just like before, Brock was there to do what he did best, annoy and motivate his brother, helping Brody get as strong as possible. It's caused Brock to work harder, never wanting to fall behind his younger twin. Through everything they've faced, their bond is stronger than ever. Sometimes I hate him, and he's the worst person in the world, and the next, he's my best friend. So we're, always, so we're just always there for each other, Brody said. And that means a lot, to have someone there no matter what. Carl said the energy is infectious, and the pair has put a fire in not only each other, but the rest of the team. Looking back at what they've accomplished and looking forward to their potential, he only sees bright things for Brock and Brody. 
Those boys have been through a lot in life. They're farm kids. They're tough. They endure a lot of things day in, day out, Carl said. And to see what he's able to do to preserve, to persevere through just to be able to go out and wrestle, then to have the work ethic and success that he does on the wrestling mat, it just speaks wonders for these boys' effort. Now on to college basketball. College men's basketball, UNI erupts in second half for a win over Townsend. Northern Iowa put an end to its recent three-game skid with an 83-66 blowout win over the 8-4 Townsend Tigers at the United Center. Trailing at halftime, the Panthers needed a big second-half performance to come away with the win. They got one. The second half, as it was not our best consecutive 20 minutes of the season to this point, it had to be close, UNI head coach Ben Jacobson said. It felt like our best 20 minutes. We did not have a short stretch where it was whether it was offensive rebounds or the transition or a couple of turnovers that made the game harder. The second half performance marked a shift away from the mistakes which caused the Panthers heartache during its recent three-game losing streak. Mistakes such as turnovers and struggling to come up with defensive rebounds which plagued UNI for, most, for much of the first half Saturday. In the first half, you and I turned the ball over 10 times and got out-rebounded 20-12, including 9 offensive rebounds for Townsend. The Panthers' mistakes allowed the Tigers to take a 33-31 lead into half. Despite a hot shooting night for the Panthers, you and I hit 45 of its field goals and 76.9% of its free throws in the first 20 minutes. UNI guard Bowron Bourne said the Panthers' mistakes were a point of emphasis in practice during the half. We knew that the offensive rebounds hurt us in the first half, Bourne said. So we knew if we wanted to win, that is what we needed to do, to get some more defensive rebounds. In practice, the last couple of weeks, that is all we have been talking about, just trying to find those possessions that we are coming out on the other end of and flipping them, just really trying to limit the possessions and flip them in our favor. Limit mistakes and flip possessions in their favor, the Panthers did exactly that in the second half. The Panthers came out of the locker room firing on all cylinders, hitting four of their first seven field goal attempts to take a 40-39 lead with 16 minutes and 51 seconds left in the second half. The lead marked the Panthers' first advantage since a Landon Wolf free throw game gave UNI a 6-5 lead with 15 minutes and 58 seconds remaining in the first half. The Tigers and Panthers battled back and forth over the next two minutes of action, trading in the lead twice until a three-pointer from Bourne put UNI in front for good. UNI outscored Townsend 36-20 down, to, down the stretch to steal the 17-point win and improve to 4-7 to and seven on the season. Over the final 20 minutes of action, you and I turned the ball over just three, min three times and out-rebounded out the Tigers 15-13, limiting Townsend to just four offensive rebounds. Bourne, who led the Panthers with 27 points, said the win felt a little bit sweeter given the Panthers' recent skid and their ability to avoid the same mistakes which plagued them in the previous three games. That was a really good Townsend team, Bourne said. It means a lot to come out on on a neutral court and be able to take care of business in pretty handily. Jacobson said the biggest key to Bourne's stand-up performance coming off the back-to-back -to -back tough outlings, outings 
came down to sophomore guard's aggressiveness. His aggressiveness was great today, coming off the last two, Jacobson said. He was able to find a couple of cracks to get between where he could get a downhill, so important for a soccer scorer like Bowen to get himself those opportunities at the line. In addition to Bourne, junior forward Cole Henry turned in a career performance with 15 points off the bench, including the final four points of the contest to put the game out of reach. According to Jacobson, Henry's skill set made him uniquely capable of attacking the defensive strategy employed by Townsend. His ability to handle and pass the ball is what puts a lot of pressure on, the def- on a defense, Jacobson said. They were going to defend our half-court offense, defend the ball screens by putting two-on-one. So you are going to be able to get it back to Cole, James, Betts, or Derek Krogman. Cole is, from a skill standpoint, the best one of the three to be in that spot. According to Bourne, Henry's performance reminded him of the way the Oskaloosa product looked in the practice prior to suffering an ankle injury before the season opener. He played a really good game today, one of the best I have seen him play, Bourne said, not only just from scoring a point, but from everything he is doing. That is how he was playing before the ankle injury. As a team, Bourne said the win provides the Panthers with reassurance following their losses to Toledo, McNeese, State, and South Florida. We know we have a good team, Bourne said. It's tough then when you start to lose and you kind of feel like, oh man, how are we losing? When our team is healthy and everybody is back and good, we are a pretty good team. We are only going to continue to get better. You and I will be in the action next Thursday to close out its non-conference schedule at home against St. Bonaventure. Tip-off is slated for 7 p.m. with broadcast coverage provided by ESPN Plus with a, scrip- uh, with a subscription. Bourne said it will be crucial for the Panthers to bring the same energy against the Bonnies as they did this Saturday. That was a really good team, Bourne said. We are going to play a really good team at home next. It's the same, it is the same mindset, finding ways to finish the game and really lock in when possessions matter. Now on to some college football. Number 7, Oregon State dominates Florida in Las Vegas Bowl. Deshaun Fenwick came off the bench to rush for 107 yards, and number 17, Oregon State, nearly dealt Florida a rare shutout, winning the Las Vegas Bowl 30-3 on Saturday. The Beavers, 10-3, reached 10 victories for the third time in program history, and the first time in 16 years. They first accomplished the feat in 2000, when coach Jonathan Smith was the team's quarterback. Oregon State won several of its final eight games. After the Beavers took control early in the third quarter by going 17-0, the the only real question was whether Florida would keep its NCAA record-scoring streak intact. The Gators were were shut out in 1988, a span of 436 games and 57 games longer than any other team. The streak remained alive when Adam Michalek made a 40-yard field goal with 37 seconds left in the game. It was the first start for Florida, redshirt quarterback Jack Miller, and it showed. He completed 13 of 22 passes for 180 yards. Miller, an Ohio transfer student, was elevated to the starting lineup when Anthony Richardson declared for the NFL draft and backup Jalen Kitna was arrested on child pornography charges. 
The Gator closed their first season under coach Billy Napier, Napier with three consecutive losses. The, this also was their second 6-7 and seven record in a row. Here's a subheader, the Fenway Bowl. Jahar Jordan ran for 115 yards, breaking free for two long touchdowns, and Louisville beat erstwhile rival Cincinnati 24-7 on Saturday in the twice-delayed first edition of the Fenway Bowl at the chilly home of the Boston Red Sox. With a gridiron laid out over the Diamond and Fenway Park in the end zones using the basketball team's traditional font, Jordan scored 49 yards out of the end of the first quarter and 40 at the end of the second to help clinch the keg of nails for for Louisville, 8-5. Brock Dahman hit Marshall Ford for another score on a 40-degree day when both teams struggled to pass or even hold on to the ball, with the Bearcats, 9-4, fumbling three times, recovering one. But Jordan Maurice Turner, who ran 31 times for 160 yards, gave Scott Satterfield's former team a 287-55 edge in rushing yards over his new team. Another subheader, L.A. Bowl. Jordan Mims rushed for a career-high 205 yards and two scores. Jake Herriner threw two touchdown passes, and Fresno State completed the biggest in-season turnover in football bowl history, in football bowl subdivision history, with a 29-6 victory over Washington State, 7-6 in Inglewood, California. Fresno State, which won the Mountain West Conference title, is the first team to get 10 wins after dropping four the first five. The Bulldogs, 10-4, were 1-4 in early October before winning the final nine games. Mims accounted for 232 all-purpose yards and outgained Washington State, which had 182 offensive yards. Both the Mims touchdown, both the Mims touchdowns were on direct snaps of the Wildcat formation. Another subheader, Lending Tree Bowl. Frank Gore Jr. ran for an NCAA bowl record 329 yards and accounted for three touchdowns to help Southern Miss hold off Rice 5-8 in Brighamham. Gore, the son of former NFL star, had a 64-yard scoring run in the second quarter threw an 18-yard touchdown pass in the third, and ran 55 yards for another score in the fourth. He also ran 59 yards to set up the go-ahead touchdown for the Golden Eagles, 7-6. Gore, who had 21 carries, broke the mark of 317 yards set by Appalachian State's Cameron Peoples in the 2020 Myrtle Beach Bowl against North Texas. Gore broke the Southern Miss record of 304 by Sam DeJarnett against Florida State in 1982. Final subheader, Celebration Bowl. Quarterback Davius Richard ran 97 yards and two touchdowns, including a one-yard scoring plunge in overtime, and North Carolina Central beat Jackson State 41-34 in Atlanta to spoil coach Deion Sanders' bid for an undefeated season in his final game with the Tigers. The Eagles' defense made a goal-line stand on Jackson State's first overtime possession to preserve the win. Tight end Hayden Hangler drop on third down from the first, set up an incompletion by Jackson State quarterback Shedler Sanders to end the game regarded as the championship of teams from historically black colleges and universities. 
Sanders' 19-yard touchdown pass to Travis Hunter as time expired in regulation set up Alejandro Mata's tying, tying extra point to send the game to overtime. It was the fourth scoring pass of the game for Sanders, who also ran for a score. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, December 18th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.